Um, here's what I want to do. I want to um, ask you to turn to, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Last week, we started David and Goliath, and the question I've been getting all week is, who wins? Now, I know this is, you're just chomping at the bit to find out. I told some of you, just open up your Bibles and read it, and you said, oh, I don't want to ruin it. I want to be like all in when I get there. So anyways, two weeks ago, here, here's what we talked about. The heart of man, uh, the essence of who we are, the core of our being, is not measured in intentions or dreams, but in decisions, so that what you do is a mirror of your heart. Last week, we said the heart of man is the lens through which we see the world. Um, it is our, expressed in our attitude, our perspective, our heart filters every experience we have in this world. So we told you is there's two ways that you can figure out what's really going on in your heart. Look at your decisions and look at your attitude or your perspective. Look at your decisions and look at your attitude, your perspective. And Second Chronicles says this, the eyes of the Lord, they don't just go to and forth, they run to and fro throughout the whole world looking to give strong support to those whose hearts are after him, toward him. And, and, and here's the idea. It's that the Lord is looking all over Israel. He's looking in the village church. He's looking, do you have a heart that's after me? Do you have a heart that's after me? And the idea is that as he's looking and he's going to and fro, that it's really hard, apparently, for God to find someone whose heart is after him. Now, does God require a perfect, flawless heart? Say no. No, because only Jesus has that. But there is something about some people where their decisions and their attitudes are toward him in a very special way, and he stops and says, I can use that person. Now, God wants to strongly support people who, who are after him. He wants to strongly, and he wants to come out and help them, give them grace. He wants to see um, the world change for Jesus Christ through people. So the Lord is looking. And here's the hard reality. He's having a very hard time finding people. And so the question that I received um, from many of you over the last two weeks is how do I get a heart after God? Like I see where I'm at. I see where I want to be. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Well, the Lord is going through Israel. And he looks at King Saul's heart. And he says, it's not after me. He even looks at Jonathan's heart. And Jonathan was righteous. He defeated the Philistines. But there was still something lacking in Jonathan's heart where God said, you're not my guy. And the Lord is looking all throughout Israel and his eyes are running to and fro to the, to the men of valor, these strong and these brave men. And he looks at them and he says, it's not you either. He looks at the brothers of David and it's not the brothers of David. It's not the strongest of the strong. It's not the powerful. It's not the rich. And then finally his eyes land on the shepherd boy, David. And the Lord says, he's different. He's different. I look at what he does. I look at his attitude. He is fundamentally different. I can support that. That is somebody that I can use. So David one day is just shepherding sheep. And the prophet of Israel, Samuel, comes and anoints him, dumps a bucket of oil over his head, and David's like, what's going on? And David is anointed, but it will be a, a decade plus before he is actually coronated the king of Israel. And so God looks at David and says, and this is his epitaph from, for all of history, David was a man after God's own heart. And we hear that, and there's something inside of us that says, I want to be like that. And if your heart, when you hear those words, does not long to have God look at you and say, you are a man or a woman or a student or a child after my own heart, there's a disconnect somewhere. So David um, finds himself uh, working with King Saul as his harpist. King Saul's a little nutso, losing his mind. 
So David comes and he plays the music for him. But one day, David's out in the fields and his dad calls him in and says, David, um, I want you to bring some cheese to the generals and some food to your brothers and I want you to find out how they're doing because a battle has come upon Israel and it's the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And what's happening is this valley called the Valley of Elah. And in this valley on each side are hills or small mountains. And the armies of the Philistines would amass on one side and the armies of the Israelites would amass on the other side. And these two armies would be in a standoff. Now, the battle is going to take place in the valley, not in the mountains. So every day, for 40 days and for 40 nights, the men of Israel and the men of Philistine, with all of their armor clanging, with all of their battle cries and their war cries, they would come down and they would meet each other. They'd stand face to face and they would send out a champion or literally the man of the between, the man who would come. And this was the rule. Um, I'll come out into the middle of the valley and you send out your best warrior and whoever wins, winner takes all. If we win, you're our slaves. If you win, we're your slaves. And so every single day, the Israelites and the Philistines would come out for 40 days and for 40 nights. Apparently on the 40th day or the 40th night, um, David finds himself in the camp and he hadn't heard about all of this shenanigan and ruckus that has gone on. David hears the men assembling and he runs out because David, best we can tell, youngest would be 11 and 12, oldest maybe 15 or 16. I mean, people look at David and they say, boy, okay? They don't say man, they say boy. And David is pumped because his three older brothers are going to battle. He runs out to the battle lines. He gets out there and he's like, brothers, what's up? How's it going? And gives them their food. And, and, and what happens next just shocks David. I mean, he hears the Philistines shouting in their battle cry, God. Goliath, Goliath. And all of the Philistines are loud and they are just so strong and powerful. And David's looking at the Israelites and saying, what's wrong with them? Why are they not shouting? Why is this so weak? Why do they look so afraid? And then out emerges, David sees this nine foot nine gargantuan human being tower above everyone else and in front of him a dude set aside just to carry his sword laden in bronze from the head to the toes and he comes out and he mocks Israel's army he mocks Israel's king he mocks Israel's God and David is incensed he is angry and he goes to his brothers and he says what's the reward for the person who fights this? And they say, well, um, you get the king's daughter, um, your dad's mortgage is paid, and you'll have tons of riches. And he says, well, who's going to fight him? Like, this is easy. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He, he's not for the Lord. Who's going to go out and fight him? And David's brothers are embarrassed, and they get mad at him. And he goes camp to camp to camp. And he says, who's going to fight this guy? Who's going who's to uh, protect the name of the Lord? Who's going to believe in God's promises that God said he will fight the battle for you? Finally, Saul gets wind of it and says, uh, David, come here. And David looks at Saul, stands in front of him and says, I have taken down bears. I've taken down lions. I'm going to fight this guy. This is nothing. The Lord is the defender of Israel. He is alive and he will fight for me. And I don't know what Saul was thinking, but Saul says, sure, why not? And David um, is in his tent, we would guess. And look down with me. We're going to start in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Remember that um, Saul is a head taller than the rest of Israel. David physically is still a boy. So this armor is like literally floating on David. This is uh, almost embarrassing. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. 
for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took, it in, he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistines. I want to give you a little context in this. Ancient armies had three kinds of warriors. The first is what we call cavalry, and these are chariots and horsemen. They're very mobile. They can do a lot of damage, um, and so if you're in the cavalry, that's probably a good place to be. Number two is heavy infantry. Heavy infantry are people who carry swords and shields. This is hand-to-hand combat. Goliath, he was heavy infantry. And then we have artillery, and this is made up of two kinds of people primarily. Um, people with bows and arrows and slingers. Bows and arrows and slingers. And David, by nature, even though he was not trained, he would fall under the category of um, artillery. So we have a heavy infantryman uh, who is strong, the best of the best, ironclad from head to foot, and then we've got an artillery guy. And what is Goliath expecting the Israelites are going to send out? Heavy infantry. That's logical, right? So send out a man. Send out a man. And here, here's the deal. Um, for some of you, you think sling, and you're thinking like a slingshot. Get that out of your mind. That's not what this is. Um, can you put up the picture for me? This is most likely similar to what it would look like. It was about three feet long, and you know how most of you have this idea that he's going like this over his head, right? Negative. He's going like this, underhand. Think softball, right? Okay, going like this. And this would go about six to seven rotations per second, Okay just to give you an idea of how fast this was. This was very accurate. This uh, good slingers could take down a bird in flight very easily, okay? So we're talking incredible accuracy, incredible um, speed. And so here's what we found. In the Valley of Elah, there's a, a creek that goes right through it, separates the battlefield. So David coming down to fight Goliath would go right by a creek, and we find his barium sulfate, which is apparently a very hard rock. And the, the rocks would be very smooth because because the water would rush over it and smooth it out. And the average size of the rocks there that one would use would be about two inches. They could, slingers would go maybe as small as an inch and a half, and that's rare, but usually about two to three and a half inches would be the normal size. And so this pool ball is roughly the size of a rock that David would find. Now I want you to imagine this hitting Goliath in the face at about 100 to 150 miles per hour. The ballistics on these, are they have the stopping power of about a 45 caliber gun. So get out of your mind slingshot. Get in your mind the ancient gun, the weapon of the day, incredibly accurate, very fast, very powerful. Now, in light of that, who's the underdog? You better believe it. David looks at this guy. He sees a shield bearer in front of him. Now, remember, Goliath's huge. So how big is Goliath's head? It's enormous. So typically, right, my face, Goliath's face. David looks at this and says, really? Like, pull out some artillery, shoot him in the face. <laughs> like, this is easy. Are you kidding me? And here's the response of, of the Israelites. In verse 11, it says, When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24 All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. And David looks at him and says, I got a sling. (laughs) This is easy. And he goes and he's trying to find anybody who will fight him, but nobody 
we'll do it. Now, before we get too ahead of ourselves, I want to bring you into the big picture. And in the big picture, in the big narrative of this, Goliath stands for something that we're going to see um, come a little bit more clearly in this text. And here's fundamentally what Goliath does not stand for. He doesn't stand for hard days. Goliath doesn't stand for little inconveniences in our life. Goliath does not um, stand for my fear of heights. Goliath, at the end of the day, stands for our greatest foes and enemies, and I'll give you three. Sin, Satan, death. Sin, Satan, death. And I think even most poignantly in the way this is set up that he represents one of our greatest foes being Satan himself. And and, and here's what I want you to understand is that Satan has two primary weapons that he uses against you. Ready for this? Lies, lust. Lies, lust. You find most everything that he will use to trick you up, he will get you to believe things that are not true. And then here's what happens, right? When Satan messes with your mind, the mind affects the heart. So here's what Goliath knows. Goliath knows that he can't change this kid's heart, but if he can get get to his head, he can make his heart discouraged and dismayed because this is what he did with all the other Israelites. And so with David, he goes up and he's like trying to, he's gonna tell him some things that are bold and scary and untrue and he's gonna feed his flesh to things. It's gonna be intense. And David steps back and David knows the promises of God, knows it. Now, the other thing the devil's gonna use is gonna be your flesh, your lusts, your desires for things. It could be um, sex or greed or money. It's this desire to want something so you can feel. Um, These are the two primary avenues that he will use against you. And yet, here we step back and we have this, what looks like a pathetic sling. I mean, literally, everybody's thinking to themselves, a sling, rocks, that's all you got? And you think about the weapons that we have, and by every standard, they look stupid, stupid, right? We imagine you're facing Satan himself. And if you were to actually face Satan himself, would he scare you? Probably. Uh, Emotionally, we would respond. We would see and we would hear. But this is where the gospel comes in and it completely changes our perspective. We understand this. First of all, your first weapon is the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus has rendered you defeated and disarmed you on the cross so that you actually have no power over me. So even though you might stand in the presence of something far scarier than anything you've ever seen, you step back and you say, Why would I be scared? You're disarmed. You're powerless. All you can do is lie to me and put out temptations. I'm the idiot if I'm going to walk into him, not you. You're not grabbing me by the hand and saying, look, lust, look, believe this lie. You're asking me, and I have the decision, the responsibility, the choice, whether or not I will walk into these things. And so we remind ourselves of the gospel. This is your first weapon, which looks so foolish and stupid to everyone around ourselves. But this is central. Satan, sin, death, disarmed. I now have, by the Spirit of God, catch this, blow your mind, self-control, meaning I have the ability to control myself so that I don't need to believe his lies and I don't need to succumb to his lusts. I have the ability to control myself. It's mind-blowing. So that um, on the day of judgment, you stand before God as a believer in Jesus Christ. Is there any lie you were forced to believe? No. Is there any temptation you were forced to run into? No. You stand before God, and he has given us everything that we need to battle these enemies in front of us. I'll give you another one. The word of God, truth. As a pastor, as a spiritual mentor, um, you've all heard this a hundred times by your mentors or your parents or the people in your life who love God. 
Get into the word of God daily because your mind is a battlefield. And this is exactly where Goliath is going after David. It is where Satan goes after us. It is where culture and people and media inundate our brains with things that are not true. And we just sit here and we have truth from God revealed to us and we just ignore it. So let me just tell you the so what of this. If you are not filling your brain with truth, you have lost. Catch me, you're done. So at this point, you need to know something. Everywhere you go are lies and untruths about the world, about uh, life, about everything. And you are sucking them in all of the time. The TV shows you watch, the magazines you read, for the most part, it is daily and all-consuming. This is called strategy, because if he can get in our minds, he can discourage our hearts. And God is looking for people whose hearts are not faint or discouraged, but are after him. I'll give you another weapon of yours. This is crazy. Obedience. The Bible does not say flee Satan. It says flee sin. Resist Satan. Resist the devil. Meaning when you see him, you don't run like scared children. You stand up to him because you have the gospel. You have the word of God, which is your armor. You, you just speak truth to him. And you stand firm because whatever he tries to tempt you with, it's like, I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey God. So he actually has no control over you. And then here's, the, here's my favorite one. This is the pinnacle sling weapon that everybody mocks at and laughs at is that we get on our knees and we pray. You don't want to pray? Then you are foolish. Just, just say it that way. I'm not saying it to be mean. It's just saying you're foolish. You're putting yourself out in an incredible battle that is going on for your mind, ultimately for your heart and affections. Because if he can get into your mind, the mind informs the heart. And if he can get your heart and render you uh, neutral for God, then the Lord will pass you by when he says, heart after me is your heart toward me, your decisions and your attitudes. If he gets in your mind, he controls your heart, which controls what you do. And so here, here's your job. You want to just, you, you want to give him a field day? Stay away from the word of God and stop praying. Because when you pray, the Bible says a number of things happen. Uh, the first thing that happens is that God uh, apparently sends angels to your, for your protection. God um, supports you by the Holy Spirit. Um, God uh, does powerful things in the spiritual realm. And yet we look at this and we say to ourselves, let's just pray or I don't see the effects. And I would just say that's what everybody saw when they saw the sling. But the real warrior of God, the real victory um, is found in people who know how to um, read and study and apply the word of God and know how to get on their knees and pray. That's where so much victory takes place. And yet the whole world looks at it and says, um, these are just ridiculous. Even the church looks at this and says, optional. There we go. I'll get back to that. Number two, hard after God rebukes the enemy's lies. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. So like the battle is about to happen here. With his shield bearer in front of him, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. This means it made him angry. He wanted a man, and instead they're sending out a boy. Like, is this mockery? Are you kidding me? Like, send out a warrior. Send out a champion. And then this kid comes out, and it says he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I love how the author constantly makes sure that you know David's really cute. Um, and the Philistines said to David, Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks is that with his staff? Uh, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Chief God is Dagon, which we're going to come back to in a little bit. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I just think this is so profound. And David's heart might be toward God, but what is Goliath going after? His mind. 
his mind because the mind drips into the heart. And if, you, if he can get your head, he can get your heart. But David is stepping back and he says, you know, uh, you have no idea. By the way, your God is dead. He, he's a demon masquerading as a God. He's nothing. I serve the living God. David, in fight after fight with bears and lions, um, at the end of the day, he knows the promises of God, knows that God will support him, knows that God wants his people to defeat the Philistines. David knows God's word. David is unafraid, unafraid. And because he knows God's word and he knows God's promises, when the lies fling at him, even though he's just got a stick and some stones, he knows what truth is and it's not able to drip into his heart because he's protected his head. The enemy's gonna quench the fire in David's heart and in our heart. He's gonna do it through our minds. And that's just, just the fact. Number three, a heart after God trusts in God's promises. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me. I imagine him laughing when he says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Are you kidding me? That's your weapons? What is David's weapon? Listen to what he says. I come to you in the name of the Lord of armies. <laughs> I'll take you down with a stick and stones. Your, your weapons make me laugh. And I love his just overwhelming confidence. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Verse 46. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. Take those four words, cut off your head, put it aside. We're going to come back to that. Great little words. Happy Mother's Day. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all may know that there is a God in Israel. Like, is this your attitude to the spiritual forces against you? Whatever I do here, everyone is going to know through my mind, through my attitude, through my decisions, that there is a God in this world. His name is Jesus Christ. And however I live this thing, I'm going to make sure that you all know Jesus is God, period. Like, that's David's attitude. And he believes God. I love this. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves. Not with the sword or spear, those are laughable. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now at this point, Goliath has got to be like, oh, 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 this is ridiculous. But he has no idea what's coming because David's weapons are infinitely more superior. If you go back in time, 1 Samuel 5, 2-4. You don't have to turn there. I want you to listen to this. And what we're going to read next in 1 Samuel 17, you need to know this. This is in the back of the author's mind. The Philistines had taken the Ark of God. We're, we're like a couple years back now. And they brought it into the house of Dagon, Dagon, however you want to say it, and set it up beside Dagon. And so this is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And they have a statue probably stone or wood, that represents the presence of their god, Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So in a battle between Dagon and Yahweh, who wins? 
every time Yahweh, 100% of the time. And now what we have here is, is, is Goliath in the name of Dagon and his mini, miniature minion gods um, mocking the God of Israel, Yahweh, one God. And who's going to win when the God of Israel and the God of the Philistines go head to head every time? It's going to be the God of Israel. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, David, catch this, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. No anxiety. He's just all in. He's running forward. And David puts his hand in his bag. I get the idea that he's in motion. This is all happening real time. And took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. At this point, David's like, whoa. <laughs> the Israelites go, did you see that? Kill them! And they run at them. And then simultaneously, the Philistines are like, did you see that? <laughs> run! They're going to kill us. And there is shouting, and it is loud, and it is intense, and all David cares about is the dead body of that Philistine sitting in front of him. Adrenaline coursing. He is um, uh, uh, intense, anxious, excited, running, ex pumped. I mean, what do you do when you have never been in battle before, and you just kill the giant of the Philistines, nine foot nine, with your awesome uh, sling? You run, and uh, this is great, verse 50 so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now, catch this. Is Goliath dead? Answer, yes, he's dead. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. I don't know how long he stood there, but I imagine he's just laughing out loud. And he took his sword and drew it out of its sheath. Now, catch this. Goliath, everything he has is Huge, okay, everything. All of his armor, all of his weapons. So David reaches in and he's like, <laughs> like imagine what this boy is doing with this gargantuan mammoth sword. And, and David is not a trained warrior in terms of this kind of battle. And so here's what happens. He takes it out of its sheath and killed him and he cut off his head with it. I, I want you to just get into what is actually happening. He didn't just get up and just have this perfect whatever. What I think happened here is the idea here is that he's killing him again. Like he's stabbing him with the sword. Like blood flying, intense. Like this is one of those movies where someone goes crazy, right? And then here's what he does. He takes the sword and he chops off his head. He cuts it off. The idea here is not that it was just a, a one-time cut head roll. Like this is a big man with a big head and it's going to take a while to get this thing off. So David is sawing and this is blood Again, happy Mother's Day. I'm so glad you're here with us. This truly is. And I, as a kid, I'm, I'm going to read this and be like, this is awesome. Moms, you want your boys to get into the Bible? Read this to them. This is like, oh my goodness. So now he's like doubly dead. He's got, it's crazy. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. They're running and they're running and the Israelites are taking over Philistine cities. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And this is where point number five, I just love this, the heart after God displays God's victory. This is the weirdest part of this whole thing. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem. Let me tell you why this is important. 
David does not get to Jerusalem until 2 Samuel 5, after he's king over a decade later. You catch that? Are you doing the math, right? David kept the head of Goliath as a constant. I know some of you are like, can we leave? This is too much. He kept it as a memento. And every time he saw this head, he is reminded, we have a God. And I was going to bring a prop, but I thought that would be too much. (laughs) He's reminded of when God came through in the biggest foe that made every valiant man man petrified. And every day David looks at this and he says, my God saves. My God saves. Sin, Satan, death, Goliath, all he needs is a sling. Just, it's amazing. I have a hunch, um, it was just a skull after some time, okay, just to make you feel a little better about it. But we're not talking a small skull. We're talking, this is a nine foot nine. Here's we get to verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, um, Abner, whose son is this youth? And the reason he's asking very simply is because he promised basically free mortgage payments to whoever's dad this is. Uh, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him. Now, he's over the Philistine's body. Catch this. Abner runs up to him, and who knows how long David is sitting there? Who knows how long this process took? But he grabs him, and he says, bring that head and come with me. So it says, and they brought him before Saul. This is so hilarious, if you can get over the weirdness of it. (laughs) With the head of the Philistine in his hand. (laughs) Sorry, it just gets... I just, I'm imagining this, and David's got to be so proud. And Saul's like, what is happening here? This is amazing. Wait till next week. That's going to be even. Anyways. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Like, I love this story. Uh, and I love the picture of David for years and years, just carrying this memento of victory with him. So what I want to do with you is I want to, I want to um, very simply, I want to answer a question that has been asked of me about this text. Um, and I've been asked this question a number of times. And then what I want to do is I want to close our time with communion and worship. Um, and the question is very simply this. How do I get a heart like David's? How do I get a heart like David's? What, is, what does that look like? Give me some meat to that. Give me the, the one-on-one of that. And here's what I want to do. I want to share with you four just things. Um, these are not four easy steps to getting a heart with David. These are just four realities of the Christian life. And uh, here's the first one. Um, you need to expose heart problems. So it's one thing, let's say, what's standing between you and God is you're a kleptomaniac and you just steal. Okay, so, all right, we cut off your hands and you can't steal anymore. But what is the problem? It's your heart. Because from the heart come your deeds and your attitudes, your decisions, and your perspectives. And so just because you stop an issue or a sin, you haven't gone for the heart. And so you look at somebody who's stealing all the time, and what's the issue? They might be greedy. They might be discontent. And so if you stop it in one place, it's just going to pop up someplace else unless you get to the heart. Now, my strong encouragement for you is if you want to get down to the heart of the issue, 
It's hard, meaning it is difficult sometimes to find it because we are complicated beings and our hearts are deceiving us all the time. But it's hard in the sense that it's hard to look in the mirror sometimes. It's hard to take a good hard look at who we really are. And these are not easy things, and I understand that. But many of us just want to pull the weed out while there are deep roots that are doing massive damage. And we need to get underneath the dirt. We need to dig it out, and that takes hard work. Number two is understand God's word. This is, again, I want to come back to this point. If you are not in the word of God, you have lost the battle. Because you are being lied to all the time. All the time. From so many different avenues. And so what we have to understand is that our mind is like a flower pot. You fill it with enough junk, we'll call it water. It just starts dribbling out the bottom and it dribbles into your heart. And at first you can deal with a little bit, but as it accumulates and too much happens, it actually starts to morph and change your heart so that the head, the mind, informs the heart. And you need to be filling it. You need to literally just fill it with tons and tons of water of the word of God so that it drips into your heart and changes you because that's one of the ways that God has chosen to change us. Number three, Trust God's character. But this is what you want, right? right? You want, I want to trust him. I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to actually believe in the core of who I am, what God says, and then act on that. Now, this is where most issues go wrong. Most of us can step back and with enough time and thought can say, I get my heart issue. I understand that. Most of us can say, I know what God's word says, but that's where we get caught up, right? That's where the problem is because we don't really want to stop. We don't want to stop. And if we don't want to, it won't happen at all. There's a fourth one here, which is act in obedience. Um, this is where um, you, if you will really um, inform your heart um, as much as you can, you'll do it through your mind and through your actions. This is why we talk about spiritual disciplines or disciplined behaviors that draw us closer to God, like reading the Word of God and prayer and serving and evangelism and stuff of the sorts. The reason we do these things, and we call them disciplines, is because they're not easy. Now you can say amen? Amen. That's why it's called discipline. But here's the, here's the deal. Your heart, right, it's sitting here, and you want to be this person who trusts in him. And so some of you, you fill your mind with junk all day long, and then you're trying to obey, and it's like, it's a lot harder than it needs to be. There is a massive battle going on, and you need to hit it on both ends, on both fronts of this battle. And so take this idea, I want to put it aside, and we'll close with this. Three ways people change. Three ways. Number one, you change if you're a believer, let me just preface that. You've got to trust in Christ and have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that, we're done. Nothing. You're just going to be the same core issues over and over again. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, number one, okay, your heart is informed through your mind. For some of you, your mind is so worldly, so inundated with junk, that you will have to go on an extensive fast, maybe from media, maybe from Facebook, maybe from music. I don't know what it is, but for some of you, it is so a part of who you are that you have to eradicate it for a season so that you can start over and hit the reset button. That's what some of you need to do. It's like mental detox. This is so hard because guess what? As soon as you try to do it, um, your deceptive part of your heart is going to say, don't stop, don't stop. It's so good. It's so great. It's not that big of a deal. Oh, don't worry about it. You can just do a little bit. But you got to detox your brain. For some of you, you need a reset button. 
the other way people change is through their hands, through their behavior, through what they do. So that as you discipline yourself, what you do informs your heart. It actually starts to change you as you seek to obey God's word. This is the way God's made it to work. So the spirit of God, who's ultimately morphing hearts, loves when we fill our minds with God's word, loves when we see God's word, and we do what it says to do despite the fact that it's harder. The spirit loves these things. And when you do those things, the spirit loves to cooperate with you, and it actually starts changing you. Does this happen immediately? Say no. No, it is slow, it is hard, it is lifelong, it is a battle, but welcome to following Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you this, if you want to give yourself over to your sin, welcome to a miserable life. Welcome to it. If you want to actually have a life in Christ, you will need to learn to control your mind and control your actions as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Here's the third way. Very simply, this is my favorite way. It's when the Holy Spirit just says, I'm done dealing with your heart issue and this particular thing, I'm going to heal you. It's over. And you wake up and you're like, I don't even know why it's gone. It's like the Lord just changed me. And he does that. He does that a lot. Uh, Some of you, you've experienced this very personally. Um, It does not happen oftentimes in the way our spouses want it to or our parents want it to, right? Um, We probably say, Lord, if you could just change that one, that would be be great. Um, More often than not, that person's issue is for your sanctification. So how about that? Um, But the Holy Spirit sometimes will just jump in and intervene. And he will just give you freedom and it's his grace and it's beautiful. And at the end of the day, it's all of God. Because you know what? It's not like my behavior is going to change my heart. The spirit cooperates with me. It's not like my um, thinking is just going to change my heart. The spirit cooperates with the word of God and truth as it gets into my soul. And again, sometimes God just jumps in.